Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. It's been my privilege to serve here as lead pastor for many years, and we are working our way through a series on the Gospel of John. And the message this morning is simply titled, Jesus is God. Can we get that? Uh... We'll, we'll give the guys a minute to get that ready. I want to read a passage of Scripture and this morning I had about, um, this, so this week, preparing for this sermon, I had a range of about 45 verses to draw, and, and <clears throat> I was getting seriously lost in the weeds. I mean, hundreds of pages of just things that I was finding, and I started to get, go in circles, lapping myself. And at the end, I had all these things that could be said, and I had no idea what I was going to say. So late this week... I called an audible, and I just focused in on a few verses, and I believe these are things that God has been wanting for you guys to hear, for me to say for a while now, and uh, so I hope it will be meaningful to you. The title of the message is, Jesus is God. You will notice throughout this whole series how uncreative I am with titles of sermons. (laughs) That's okay, because at least when you see this on the website, there'll be no mystery what this one was about. And I hope that helps you. I want to look at John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24. This is the word of God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. It's the word of God. One of the jobs and the privileges I have as a preacher is to present a God who is infinitely higher and other than who we are, and present him to you in a way that is accessible, relatable, knowable, so that somehow a God who is impossibly transcendent is in in a real way brought down to earth into our hearts so we can actually grasp who this God is. But sometimes it's also my job as a preacher to go in the other direction, And to present to you a God who has become overly familiar, maybe too small, and take a step back and present him in a way that reminds us 
that he is very different than what we might be thinking about him in this moment. That he is vaster, more marvelous, more amazing than our everyday lives might lull us into believing. I suppose that's a hazard in every relationship. I'm just thinking sometimes, and I've told you guys this before, how it's a little creepy, but when Jeannie's sleeping, I often just stare at her while she's sleeping. Because it's the one time she doesn't turn away when I'm trying to make eye contact. When she's sleeping, she's defenseless. I could just look at her face for hours, and I, I ponder things while I'm looking at her. Okay, It's not creepy. It's just really, like, I, I, I think about things like this. This girl once made me so nervous I could hardly talk when I was around her. I was giddy every time I was about to go see her. I couldn't believe she said yes when I asked her out on a date. And that same girl, I can go for days hardly thinking about or looking at today. And I realize in every relationship, there is a moment when the novelty wears off and a person becomes so familiar. And when a person becomes familiar, they become small. They become easy to put away in a small shelf and say to ourselves, I know where you belong in my life. But once in a while in every relationship, we need to take a step back and take another fresh look at this person who we think we know so well and realize what a marvel it is that we have a relationship with them at all. And so those are the things I think about when I'm staring at her is, this is still the same girl that took my breath away. I sometimes stare at my kids when they're sleeping. That's also creepy because sometimes they wake up and they scream. (laughs) But I look at them and think, I remember the day I first held you in a hospital room. And then I think about last week how I just wanted to strangle you (laughs) because I'm so frustrated with your attitude. And I think, how could that be the same person? But it is. And it's when I ponder the majesty, the mystery, the marvel of that relationship that it changes the way I interact in the moment. This morning, I want to walk us through a passage where Jesus helps us do that in our relationship with him. Now, he's talking to Jewish leaders who had confronted him hostily because he had healed the man on the Sabbath. So this was like him talking to disciples. He is in a confrontation right now, but as we read it on this side of the cross as followers of Jesus, it's a good reminder to us that the same self who he is presenting to them, he is reminding us who have become far too familiar with Jesus. That's the same Jesus that once we had our eyes opened and we marveled that he would accept us. He took us as we came to him. He loved us. He had mercy on us. Knowing everything that was bad about us, he still accepted us. And every now and then, we have to do that in all of our important relationships. This morning, I want to do that together in our relationship with Jesus. I fully recognize at the same time that what may be revealed during this sermon is that for some of us, we will recognize, not in a condemning way, but in a revelatory way, that we may have been in church for years but never really had this relationship with Jesus. And if that's what you discover, there needs to be no shame or condemnation in that. That is God's invitation to you. Why not begin right now? If there has been more to this than you have seen for years and years, why continue depriving yourself of the richness of what this is all supposed to be? 
So I hope that will be the effect on you if you discover that you have never really had this personal, life-giving, intimate relationship with Jesus. I want to make some observations from this text. And the first is that to see Jesus is to see God. You know, I think there are times when uh, the nature of God seems so clear to us. We have positive thoughts, clearly positive thoughts about God. And then there are other times when it's harder to have clarity about God. He confuses us. Why does he do some of the things he does? And I'm talking about when we read scripture and we're confused, but also when we look at our lives, we're filled with questions and tensions sometimes, aren't we? I hope I'm not the only one. Don't leave me hanging, guys. Just nod something. Am I the only one who sometimes goes, what's up with God? Why does he do the things he does sometimes? Why does he allow the things he allows sometimes? How come sometimes when I cry out for him to act, he seems not to act at all? Sometimes he seems not to even hear that I'm crying out. So there are moments when I'm so clear that God is good. He loves me. He's for me. And other times I go, where are you? Who are you? Why do you do what you do? I think reading the Old Testament is particularly challenging. Would you agree? Because if you read the Old Testament with open eyes and an awake mind, it's going to create some tension for the thinking person. There are these wonderful portrayals of a positive God in the Old Testament. I see his very clear heart of forgiveness and patience. There are people who screw up again and again. It's almost like he only wanted to use the losers. He consistently picked people who were imperfect, and he used them, and he patiently worked with them regardless of their failings. I see his clear heart for justice, his very, very deep concern for the poor, and the foreigner, the outsider. I read of how he lovingly shapes each one of us uniquely, cell by cell, in our mother's womb, has a destiny and a plan for our lives. So I see these beautiful portrayals of God in the Old Testament, but then I also see another picture of God. I see his wrath poured out on people groups, and it manifests in just slaughter and the loss of life. I see him prescribe capital punishment for things that I just feel in my own human mind, it's too much. I know it's bad, but killing a person for that, I don't understand it. I see the horrible fate he sometimes permits his most faithful servants to fall into. They served you all their lives, and this is how their story ended here on earth. And I'm filled with tension as I try to reconcile those two pictures of God. And because God is vast and infinite and transcendent, he does not owe us an explanation or a defense. But that doesn't block the fact that because he is sovereign, we demand to understand. We have a a drive in our hearts. Make sense to me, God. I can't just say you're almighty, but have no just complete perplexity about why you do what you do and why you seem like sometimes such a contradiction within yourself. Then we move to the, Old Te- the New Testament, and then we encounter Jesus. And I've known a lot of people who have a problem with the God of the Old Testament, but I have rarely met a person who looks at Jesus and goes, what a dirtbag. I hate that guy. 
It's nearly impossible to behold the Jesus of the Gospels and hate him. Never has there been a human being so flawless, so complete in his beauty and attractiveness that you try to find fault and you can't. And many people have tried vigorously. The best they can manage is it's all just a figment of our imagination. Jesus is just a symbol of some latent subconscious need we have to worship something, to, to, to say there's some higher power. But I have rarely heard a valid criticism of Jesus, the person that sticks. And so we look at Jesus in the New Testament, and we hear him testify that I am my father's son. And we think to ourselves, how could the son be so nice and the father be, mm? And it creates this weird paradox in us. Are there two gods? Many people have pondered this question for a long time, smarter people than I have. And they, some of them, reach crazy conclusions. Maybe during the time between the Old and the New Testament, God went on a personal retreat and he had a turnaround. In that 400-year intertestamental period, he chilled out and went, what was I thinking? All that killing and plagues and law and condemnation? i got to cool down. I'm going to just start being loving. I'm going to try that. I don't know if you have teenagers. Sometimes you go through those changes. You're like, I've been yelling for so long. I'm going to try another tactic. I'm just going to be really nice. I'm going to conquer you with kindness. That lasts about a day, and then you realize your kids are not changing. So maybe... Jesus is God 2.0. Maybe Jesus is God new and improved, softened somehow, matured, evolved. So it's startling then in this passage when Jesus says, no, that's not it at all. If that's the way you think, that somehow you like me, but my father you don't care for much, you've got the wrong picture. He and I are the same. When you look at me and you see all that is lovely and winsome. You see how hard, how deep my love is for society's outcasts, for those that the world wants to throw away and discard and forget. When you see how compassionate I am towards those who are under the power of sin. When you see how courageously intolerant I am of religious hypocrisy when you see how patient I am with my followers who are so slow to learn and to grow, when you see the high view, the countercultural, revolutionarily high view I have of women and children, and you marvel at those things, don't for a moment think that somehow what you're seeing is a son who has grown past his father. Everything I do and say, everything that I am, I learn by watching my daddy. When you see Jesus, you see the clearest revelation of the true heart of God. In fact, even the God of the Old Testament. It's hard to reconcile those two pictures of God, but the key is this. If you want to know God, there is no other decoder ring but the person of Jesus Christ. He is God revealed to us in a form we can finally truly understand and relate to. And if you are perplexed by God, the proper lens with which to understand him is to begin with Jesus and say, how could what I see here 
in my life and in the Old Testament be revealing the same heart that I see in Jesus. You may find in your heart that the God of the Old Testament seems awfully intolerant, especially towards what he calls sin. That's not so different from Jesus. He was gracious, but he never was confused. He had it clearly in his mind that there is a way that leads to life and a way that leads to death. And because he loved us, he could not give us the luxury of the delusion that somehow you could pick your own path to God and to righteousness. The way he made the universe, the way he made us, there is only one way to true life, and that is on God's terms. He understood that because that's the way we were made. And if we're going to experience that life, we can't just make up our own rules and somehow get there. Jesus was as clear as his father. There is a right way and a wrong way to find life, and I want you on the right path that leads to life. We don't get to pick our own adventure. This is a story with a narrative and an author. Remember those pick-your-own-adventure books? I love them because they put all the control in my hands. But at the end, I'm like, I don't know what story this was supposed to be. There's a comfort in reading a novel where an author tells you what was in their mind. What Jesus says is that when you look at me, what you're seeing is the deepest essence of the heart of my Father. He and I have the same heart. If you want to know God, I invite you to make a study of the person of Jesus. When I say make a study of him, I don't mean in the typical Asian way with books. I know not all of you are Asian, but you know, that that Asian way. When I say make a study... At least half the room is getting really excited. Oh, study. <laughs> no, no. I mean, like, really look at him. The way I stare at my wife and children when they're asleep and helpless, that kind of study. Just really gaze at them again, fighting for a different look. This person who's so familiar, suddenly that your eyes would shift and you go, oh, oh. You know, in the upper room, in, in, what, um, in what's come to be known as the Last Supper, just before being crucified, Jesus had one last intimate dinner fellowship with his closest friends. And he was having some really meaningful conversations with people. And in one part of that conversation, he says to Philip, Philip, how can you ask me to show you the Father? Have you been with me this long? You don't realize when you look at me, you're seeing the Father. I'm not just a pointer to God. I am God. And from this point forward, you need to know that anyone who has seen me has seen him. You want to know who God is? Gaze at me and you'll begin to understand who this God is. What he's like what he cares about, what he's fighting for, and what he wants for you and from you. I don't know what being a Christian is for those of you who identify that way, but I know what it needs to be. It needs to be an obsessive pursuit of the person of Jesus Christ because he is the only way by which we will come to know who God really is. And apart from this personal Jesus, 
God will just be an idea, a doctrine, a cosmic entity, and very little more for us. I'm going to make a second observation. To honor Jesus is to honor God. Jesus says a very bold statement, to know me or to see me is to know and see my Father. Now remember, he's talking to Jewish leaders. This is like, just imagine if I said something like that to you guys on a Sunday morning. You don't need to read the Bible or look, look at me. I am God. She'd be like, let's go to another church. It's a very bold thing for someone to say. And either an insane person or a guy who's really telling the truth could say something like that with a straight face. And he says that to them, and then he follows with this. If you really want to honor my father, which you think you've been doing so well all your lives, I'm drawing a line and saying, I want you to know that it's impossible to embrace my father without embracing me. You cannot have my father and ignore me. And the converse is true. You cannot have me and reject my father. I think there are a lot of people who sort of flip-flop back and forth between the fan clubs. I'm a big fan of God, but Jesus I don't really know well. Or, boy, I really love Jesus, but that God, I don't know. And what he says is we are indivisible. You can't say, I like Dave Lee, Jeannie's husband. I just don't like Pastor Dave. How is that possible? I'm the same dude. You can't be friends with Jeannie's husband and enemies with Pastor Dave. And I think what Jesus is saying is, from now on, to accept one of us, to honor one of us, is to honor both of us. Think about how provocative a thing that is to say to his audience, because he's talking to Jewish leaders. These guys were mad at him because you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. Think about how petty things have gotten for these guys. Have you ever met people like this who get all up in arms over the finest point of nuance? Not that small, subtle things don't have meaning and importance, but they get disproportionately agitated about these things. I disagree. I think the present tense of that is... And you're like, okay, all right, calm down, buddy. I get it's important, but man, you really need to get out more. These guys are upset because a guy who for 38 years could not walk was a blight in their community, just a prop, like detritus, hanging around the fountain. They walk past him around him every day. Oh, there's that guy again. You know, that's who he was. He was just debris. And all of a sudden, they see him walking around. (laughs) He's carrying a mat. and All they can think about is, it's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to carry anything. Can you imagine, just for a moment, that you see a miracle like that, and you're agitated about the subtlety of that rule? How lost had they become in the way they thought about God that a human life was turned around And they were troubled that he was doing, quote, unquote, work on the Sabbath. Jesus confronts them right away and says, my father is always working and I too am now working. What he's doing for these guys is drawing a line in the sand. 
He's saying to them, you have tried for centuries to get close to God, to be on the right side with God, to honor God by towing the line, by finding yourself on the right side of every moral issue, by doing every good deed you could, by avoiding every bad deed you could. You made huge public ostentatious sacrifices in the honor of God. And you thought that all these things would somehow obsessively draw you one step closer to God. And you missed all along the way the whole point of it, which if you look at the Old Testament again from start to finish, tells one story. God aches for the death and the brokenness of the world, and he longs to be reunited to his lost children. He has always wanted a relationship. Always. That's what he wanted from Genesis 1. And it has never, ever changed. It is still what he wants from us. He doesn't want moral righteousness. That's not the ultimate goal. He doesn't want you on the right side of issues and doing good deeds and not doing bad deeds. All those things are part of the journey. But the point is this. He wants you to actually know him and be known by him. It was always meant to be a personal and intimate relationship. That didn't change when Jesus came on the scene. It was the case all along. Don't you know that it was the God of the Old Testament who talked one-on-one with, with men in tents, like friends talk to each other? It's the same God who, in the midst of everything, stooped down and played matchmaker so that a man could finally land the wife that he loved in his heart. In the midst of everything else he has going on, he hears the cries of a barren woman and gives her the gift of pregnancy, restoring her dignity and hope. He's always paid attention to us at a personal level. He never wanted to be the stuffy oil painting in the hallway to whom we dedicate this company. He always wanted to be the guy walking the halls with us, knowing us and being known by us. I think this is relevant for us in this moment in the history of the church in America. Because the more I travel and get to meet Christians from all over, I'm becoming convinced of something. That I think a great many people who go to the church and identify as Christians are in fact functional deists. Do you know what a deist is? A deist is someone who gladly acknowledges the existence of a supreme being, a higher being, an ultimate being, and say, yeah, there's a big guy upstairs, but that's where it ends for them functionally. It doesn't matter what the rhetoric says. The truth is for them, God, the way they relate to him and engage with him is he's the big man upstairs. He's got some rules, some ways that we're supposed to behave. We have to be on the right side of this issue and that issue. But aside from that, it's not like I know him. I just want to be on the right side of these things. And as I talk to people when the guard is down, when we're just shooting the breeze, it's startling to me how rarely I hear Christians speak about Jesus like he's a person they know. Today in the church, I find so little that feels personal and intimate with respect to Jesus. I hear lots of strong opinions about God, but in a way that feels to me disembodied. Like he's a figurehead, not a real person. And I believe that probably more than just about anything breaks the heart of God who has yearned for a relationship with his people from the beginning. 
I don't know if that describes your faith today. Maybe it does. Maybe you talk a lot about God, 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 but the name of Jesus almost never really crosses your lips except three times a day at the end of your prayer for your meal. Do you know, I bet you there are a lot of people who only utter the name of Jesus three times a day. (laughs) Thank you for this food. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. I'm sure Jesus is up there going, at least they like their food. But, you know, the truth is I think he wants more from us and more with us, and more for us than that. And that's the beauty, the richness of being a Christian. If you take that personal relationship away, this is actually really not a great lifestyle, man. Can we just admit that? How many of you, if you're really honest, in your mammalian biological being would have preferred to stay in bed and sleep in today, especially on a dreary, rainy morning? Hey, guess what? I'm raising my hand. I'm here because I love Jesus and I love you and I want to worship. But if I'm really honest, in my flesh, I want to be comfortable. But the truth is, I think he wants a real, personal relationship with us. He doesn't just want to see us go to the right places be on the right side of issues, do the right things, say the right things. He wants for us to actually know him at a personal level. Does it feel like that to you? That may be what's missing in your life. If that's the case, then my invitation to you is take another long, hard look at the person of Jesus. Maybe part of the reason you find him easy to ignore is you haven't really thought or looked at him much But when you do, something mystical happens. The more we gaze at Jesus, the more he comes alive. The more attractive he becomes. I found this to be the case for me. I mean, I he's my boss, okay? So there's a sense in which I have this structural scaffolding in my life. I have to wake up and be a Christian in some ways. My job depends on it. But when I really start to look for him and look at him, something starts to come alive in me. And I think, I suspect, that the people around me begin to feel the two when I'm in that place versus a a different place. I don't know if you've spent a lot of time and energy and focus gazing at Jesus, but I invite you to begin with the Gospels. And really read, but when you read the Gospels, this time don't look for life principles, don't look for... Life's little owner's manual, you know, rules for life. Don't look for things like that. Look for who he is. Read it like a biography and go, who is this guy? What are you like? What makes you tick? Why do you do the things you do? Why do you care about what you care about? What are you revealing to me about your essence? Don't decide that beforehand. Look at the Gospels again. I invite you to do this. Start with Matthew and read all the way through John and say, Jesus, who are you? Show me. Reveal yourself. I think that's all you have to do. He'll take over from there and he'll begin to draw you towards himself. Too often we look at the Bible for principles and we miss the person. But the person has always been the point. I want to give you one last thing, and then we've got to end here. And that is to receive Jesus is to receive life. 
You know, before Jesus is ever our role model, our teacher, our friend, our provider, our healer, before he is ever those things to us, he is above all things our savior. He cannot even be our king until he becomes our savior. At some point, we have to trust that what he has done for us is enough for us to turn our entire lives and our destinies over to him. And the reason he is Savior above all things is because God has given him the authority to dispense both life and judgment. That's in his hands. It's up to him. And Jesus leaves no room for doubt. In that that same upper room, last supper conversation, he would say to his friends, I am the way and the truth and the life. There's no such thing as a Christianity apart from or rerouted around Jesus. You cannot worship biblical truth. You cannot worship social justice. You cannot worship human welfare. You cannot worship anything other than Jesus first. He says that no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you're feeling far from God in your life right now, the bridge back, the bridge there, doesn't come through any other road. It comes directly through Jesus Christ himself. There's no bypassing. The point of life is not to be a good person. If that's the point of life, we've all failed. Give up now and sleep in. The point of life is not to be a good person. The point of life is to know God truly before we exit. That is the one thing of fundamental, profound importance. Everything else flows out of that. Jesus was never confused about his mission. And he gives us this amazing invitation. He says, if you believe in me and the one who sent me, here's what you get. You get eternal life. I don't want to belabor this, but if you put the accent on the word eternal, it produces great hope. Pastor Jared was talking about as he gets older, the things he appreciates. I'm finding the same thing. As I get older, my view of things is evolving quite a bit. And as my own exit from this world draws ever closer, I know I'm only 50, but man, I, I think I, I, I obsess over this disproportionately. Because I'm starting to feel like, wow, I could actually picture the day when this is all done. When I was 20, I was going to live forever, man. I thought I, I could fly if I wanted to. I thought I was bulletproof. Now I have no such illusions. This life is amazingly short. It's a lot of fun. There's so much good here, but it's also very fragile. And the more hospital beds I sit next to, the more bad news I receive on the phone, the more funerals I attend, I'm reminded again and again how fragile, how fleeting this life actually is. And when I hear Jesus hold out the promise and invitation that when we believe him, the gift we receive is eternal life, that is incredibly hope-giving for me. Something deep inside of me yearns for this to be true. And I can't prove it to you. I can't argue you into a corner. 
It's entirely faith. But it feels like a faith that is not lost on something that's a long shot. It doesn't feel like a Hail Mary. It feels like faith in the most real hope I've ever been given in my life. That's my hope. And it's what allows me to wrestle through the shortness and fragility of this life. So this idea that the life is eternal is so hope-giving for me. But when we put the accent on the second word, it's also very energizing and empowering. Because what he says is it's not just a life you lay hold of after you die. But he says the moment you place your faith in Jesus, do you see what it says? You have passed in that moment from death to life. Meaning there was an existence you knew in this world of flesh and blood that didn't really feel like true life. Have you ever had that moment where it was like, you know, I, I, all, how many of you wear glasses? Yeah, I, I denied that I needed glasses for years, and I finally, when my grades started to suffer, I couldn't drive very well, I finally went to the optometrist, and he gave me one of these, and I put it on, I was like, whoa! The world was very clear. Half the people were not as attractive as I thought they were. Half or more. You know, it's just one of those things like, oh, I'm seeing everything. Holy cow. It was as if everything changed in an instant. I was looking at the same stuff, but I couldn't see it the same way anymore. It just felt different, clearer, more real. Many of us who are old enough to remember, do you remember what it's like going from black and white television? What is that? To color television. I remember I was like, Color. Some of you are like, how old is this guy? And then I remember when we went from old-fashioned tube TVs to HD, and suddenly even athletes had to start shaving and plucking their nose hairs because you could see everything. And with each incremental step forward, now ultra 20K or whatever they're at now, it's like everything is clearer. I believe That is what Jesus is trying to describe when he says, you will have life, not just a pulse, not just an existence. You will actually start to be alive. Do you hear that? Because some of us, no matter how comfortable our lives may be, how filled with luxury they may be, if we're really honest, we're scared to death that without all that stuff to look forward to, there's really nothing here right now. If I didn't have the vacation to look ahead to, if I didn't have the beautiful place to live and the fun cars to drive and the delicious food to eat, what would my life be? What would any of this mean? If I had to trade lives with that guy, I would, I would end it. The only thing that makes it bearable is how comfortable I've made this place. But you take that away, I don't really feel alive. I feel like I'm just marking time trying to have some fun along the way. If that's how life feels for you, there is more. We're not just meant to experience things. We're meant to come fully alive in the deepest sense of the word. Later in this same gospel, Jesus would say, when you feel like your life is gone, it's leaking, someone is responsible for that. It's the enemy of God, the thief. But when Jesus steps in, what he says is, I have come so that you will have life. I'm like, Sorry, I'm already alive. What are you selling? It's like selling snow to an Eskimo. 
No, 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 no. I'm not just selling you snow. I'm selling you snow. See, he's saying, I know you're alive. You're... That's not life. That's existence. He's offering something that feels fundamentally different from the inside. You're not just enduring each day with gritted teeth. You are alive. And if that sounds attractive to you, if that sounds like what you've been pursuing in the depth of your heart, what Jesus reveals to us here is there's one way to lay hold of real life, real life. We're trying so hard to change the world around us. What we're really trying to do is change our own internal world first. I hate the world I live in so much of the time. I find our world exceedingly ugly, unfair, broken, almost beyond repair. But I remain joyfully in it because Jesus has changed my inner world and given me a source of hope by which I can look at that broken world and think differently about it. I know this whole world will come to an end in its broken state. But here is the amazing invitation of Jesus. You can trust him now, and you can lay hold of life that is real life, and it will follow you on the other side of the veil of death. That's the good news of the gospel. And if that is not what you're experiencing, I invite you to put down your guard and receive that invitation today. I'm not going to ask anyone to close their eyes and stand up or anything like that, but in your heart, if you know that's what's been missing, can I invite you to just quiet and humble your heart and say, let me begin there with Jesus again. He is the only way to God the Father, and to this life that is truly life. And that's what I need to lay hold of again. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.